Across America, BP supports more than 275,000 jobs to keep energy flowing. Jobs like expanding capacity for sustainable aviation fuel and biodiesel in Washington state and bringing massive new infrastructure online in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. I'm Kara Swisher, and you're listening to Sway. For more than a decade, Emily Ratajkowski has made her living off her beauty. Since she started modeling in her early teens, she's appeared on magazine covers and modeled for top designers. She's also worked as an actor, appearing in films like Gone Girl. But it's on social media where she really shines. These days, she has more than 28 million followers on Instagram and her own fashion brand. Basically, she's an expert on the power that comes from being very, very good-looking. But for Ratajkowski, it's not so simple. In her new book of essays, My Body, she asks, who's really in charge? Beautiful women or the men who are looking at them? It's an issue she first explored in an essay published in New York Magazine last year. And like a lot of things Ratajkowski does, it went viral. So I wanted to talk to her about where she thinks her power comes from, why she wrote this book, and whether she'll ever quit Instagram. Emily, welcome to Sway. Thank you so much for having me. Congratulations on the book, Making the New York Times Bestseller List. Thank you. My son was just born this, my fourth child, and I was driving my wife crazy by reading passages of your book to her. <laughs> oh my God. She must have been ready to kill you. Well, she she's a former <laughs> book you. editor, so she had a lot of thoughts. Okay. But it was really funny. And at one point when she was in a lot of pain, she goes, enough of Emily. <laughs> Um, well, congrats to both of you, and I'm very sorry to her. <laughs> yeah, that's okay. She really enjoyed them, actually. Um, a lot of people know you, and they think they know you from social media. You're very active on it. So I want to talk about using the book format, because you have a lot of ways to communicate with other people. Why the book for you? Such a great question. Um, well, I think that there's something in writing specifically above any other type of art making or communication style where you can really have room for nuance and for contradictions. You know, I went to school for art for a year. I thought about becoming a painter and I found it like way too pretentious. I felt like you communicated to a very small group of people. Um, And then, you know, my experience with media, like, you know, using Instagram, Twitter, Um, as a public persona had also, I'd found that failed as a means to communicate some of the ideas I was interested in. And I also just love, I've always loved literature. I've always loved essays in particular. So, you know, when I was like 18, I was considering kind of like, well, maybe I'll be an artist or maybe I'll be a writer and modeling will be my day job. Um, It took me a while, but I ended up doing that anyway. Um, With the book, do you think a way to assert control over your own story? Absolutely. It was very intentional. You know, I mean, I want to say when I started writing, it was more for me to sort of organize my thoughts, but deciding to publish it, finding a lit agent, like sharing the writing at all was an intentional thing. It was about control. It was about taking over the narrative. It was about giving this sort of 
I write about this in the book, you know, these Emily's, these images, um, a voice um, and saying like, no, this is actually, this is a real person. So when you're thinking about doing this, you've been in the modeling industry for 16 years, which is a very long time. More than half my life. More than half your life. Mm -hmm. And it's been good to you. It's given you money, fame, relevance. And to get that, you traded what you call the title of this book, My Body. But in it, you seem not to like it. Like you seem not to enjoy that transaction or that trade that you're making. So I guess my question to you is, why did you not leave earlier or make this shift earlier? Was it just the money's too good or the... You like the attention or what was it about it? Easy money? Both. Um, Definitely easy money. I mean, I also think, you know, my dad was a painter. My mom was a writer and they both had held day jobs as teachers. So I had this idea of like, you don't always do what you love for how you make money. Like those things don't often go hand in hand. You do the work in order to do the things you love with the time that you have off. Um, So that was sort of one part of my approach. And then yeah, the money was easy. I had graduated high school in 2009, a year after the economy crashed. And I had seen, you know, my friends come back to their hometown, saddled with student loan debt, take the shitty job at the cafe that they hated. And I was like, this is incredible. Not only do I not have to work as hard as my friends, I get to make more money. And also like, it's extremely validating to have these like beautiful pictures of myself. And even just the way that, you know, people be like, oh, you're a model. Um, You know, at 19, that made me feel really good. Mm -hmm. And did you ever think about doing anything else? Oh, totally. Yeah. Um, I mean, I went to UCLA as an art major and kind of thought like, if I'm not going to be an artist, maybe I'll work in the art world. But I think that that was also part of the reason that I really got scared. I was like, what is, what's my work going to be like when I graduate from the school? And I was paying for part of my education with the modeling money and getting more and more opportunities to go to, you know, glamorous places. And that's sort of when I made the decision. But the idea was, I, you know, I approached it like people talk about modeling the way they talk about athletes and and sports that, you know, you have this limited time. So I was like, well, I better capitalize on this. I won't be able to do this when I'm 25, which I don't even know if that's really true, but that really felt very true at the time. And so that's why I sort of started down that route. And then I think there was a moment where I just, it turned into something that I hadn't prepared for. And at that point, it was more about like, everyone thinks that I am really lucky and I feel really lucky in a lot of ways, especially financially. So that sort of was a weird period in my 20s. And I think coming out of that period is when I started to write this book. Okay. So let me read you this quote from Money Reviews because when I read the book, I didn't quite know what to think about it. I'll be honest with you. I had a lot of conflicting emotions. I think it's beautifully written. The observational stuff is great. There's a lot of self-editing. I can see you want to say more in several places, Mm -hmm. even though you disclose quite a lot. Um, But let me read a quote from one of the many reviews. Uh, Radikowski is hoping to set the record straight. She is neither a victim nor stooge, neither a cynical collaborator in the male agenda, as her critics have argued, nor some pop feminist empoweree, as she herself once supposed. Today, she is just a girl standing in front of 28 million Instagram followers asking them to take her seriously. Do you think people don't take you seriously? I think they do. So I actually like that paragraph by Andrea Longchu. Um, I mean, I want to be careful how I answer this question because... I don't want to say like, boo-hoo, nobody takes me seriously. I also think that recently, especially with kind of the way that this book has rolled out, like people are, even if they kind of have, you know, it brings up things for them and they're not sure how they feel about this or that, they are taking it seriously, which is definitely all I wanted. I would say that 
my experiences in the industries that I've existed in, and certainly just as a person moving through the world, I feel that I've been dismissed quite frequently and in a way that I think a lot of women are. I don't mm-hmm. think I'm special in that way. Right. So let's talk about power because this is what this podcast is mostly about. I talk to a lot of powerful people, people who aren't powerful, people who think they're powerful. One of the things that struck me, and I wrote this down, is that many times in this book, you thought you had power that you just didn't have, which was I thought was really interesting, is that you felt powerful, but in fact, none of the power resided with you. Um, you called yourself a prop at one point. So can you untangle the benefits and drawbacks of uh, of your beauty, I guess? Yeah, I don't really think it's about beauty. I think it's just being a woman. I think you go through the same negotiations every woman does when she's getting ready in the morning and deciding like how much of her body she's going to show or not show and how that's going to empower or disempower her. And the other thing I'm really interested in exploring in the question in the book is what is empowerment and what is power? Like when you just said, I've had people on that think they're powerful. I'm like, really? Like, tell me what you're, you know, what is power? Um, Because empowerment can, you can say that it's fame, it's money, certainly it's influence. It also can be a feeling. It also can be, you know, a fulfillment, like fulfilling the need to make something can be empowering. And is that what power is to you? I, I think it's agency. I think it's the ability to say no. Huh. But how can, my question to that is, how about if your no or your yes is informed by so many things outside of yourself that it's like very hard to say yes or no? That's the thing that I see all the time with women. And in my own experience, it's just very complicated. No is not always just so simple. I mean, I really love Melissa Favos' book, Girlhood, because she explores the idea of like consent not necessarily always being so clear. And I think that's what I was looking into there were so many moments in my life and continued, I mean, I think now much less, but even into my mid-20s where I felt like, well, I mean, I'm taking this check and I'm saying yes, or feeling both, you know, the drawbacks and the benefits to agreeing to transactions that also didn't feel good. Right. Well, throughout the book, you explore the idea of empowerment and the power that comes from beauty. But you also say, quote, women who gain their power from beauty were indebted to the men whose desire granted them that power in the first place. That's essentially the male gaze concept. Um, How do you think about those power dynamics? Is the power of your body ever just yours? I don't know. Um, That's a question I ask in the book. I, you know, have found moments of control in my experience as a model and just as a woman that have helped me feel better um, about, you know, how I operate in the world. Can you give me an example of that? Yeah. I mean, at first, Instagram was that way for me. It was a way of controlling the images that were put out of me. And now I see young girls or women, you know, playing with OnlyFans. You know, every woman has to be afraid of revenge porn. And so, you know, saying like, okay, no, I'm going to be the one who decides what images go out of my body. And I think that I have always liked to think of myself as somebody who's very radical, burn the system down. And I do want that. But at the same time, I wouldn't fault any woman for trying to navigate the system as it is and to succeed in it. Mm -hmm. How do you think women see you? Because a lot of times in the book, you often describe some of the women as competitors. You actually say it out loud, which I thought was quite refreshing. Because this is a lot about the male, your book is a lot about the male gaze. How do you think women see you? And who do you think you're writing this thing for? 
Well, I would actually say the book is more about women than it is about men. Hmm. In every essay, I'm either focused on my mother or a friend from high school or a famous woman or another woman at a party, a Victoria's Secret model. I actually think that I'm pretty obsessed with women. Um, And also, you know, the most fulfilling relationships in my life are with other women and female relationships. So how do I think women see me? I mean, I try to connect with women in the way that I hope to connect with them in this book by being very honest about my experience as a woman. So I want to talk a little bit about your mother because I think this is a lot about your mother, this book. And I think your portrait of her and your observations about her are, you have great affection for her, but it's somewhat of an indictment in some ways. There's obviously love and empathy you have for her, but it's suffused with sadness. The opening where she's sort of competing with you is very stark. Um, Tell me about this line that you wrote. Beauty was the way for me to be special. When I was special, I felt my parents' love for me the most. As a mother of so many kids, that just stopped, broke my heart completely. I mean, I think that I didn't so much conflate beauty with lovability, but I, you know, conflated specialness with lovability. And one of the ways that I really felt like I could be special was by being beautiful and by, you know, being acknowledged as a beautiful woman in the world, not just, you know, looking pretty around the house, but like having kind of the validation that modeling brought. And that first essay, Beauty Lessons, I wrote because I was interested in understanding how I learned to, you know, pray for beauty as a six-year-old or whatever, instead of praying for intelligence or safety or humor or all the things that a young person could pray for, to say like, how the fuck did this all start? (laughs) And also to get to the bottom of the way that I had learned to compare myself to other women and to kind of build an identity around comparing myself to other women. And I didn't know where that had come from. And I don't think that my mom ever had an awareness that she was kind of implementing these ideas about beauty or about other women. I think that it was a side effect of her childhood of having a lot of shame around, I say in the book, you know, her father said, you can't say thank you if someone tells you you're pretty or beautiful. You didn't do anything to earn it. So she had just a really complicated relationship to the way she looked and she wanted me to celebrate it and even capitalize on it. And they thought that modeling was a pathway to that. But yeah, I mean, my relationship with my mother is complicated. Mm -hmm. Yeah, (laughs) a lot of what I came up with, and maybe I'm incorrect in my reading of it, was uh, that you weren't as well protected as you might have been. You have it seen around a young man who sexually abused you. That's also devastating. You know, I think about that a lot with my kids. It's like, what? how do you protect children from things? Uh, It was quite heartbreaking. I found it to be that way. I mean, I tried to write the book without judgment of anyone, even of the men. I just did an interview today where the person who was interviewing me said, um, predators. And I was like, yeah, I mean, listen, like I tried to withhold judgment and withhold punishment in the writing. I think it's really easy to punish people in your writing. And it was really important to me not to do that and kind of just be as honest as possible, you know, to sort of say like, what did happen? Like it was purely a way for me to kind of gain perspective on some of these situations or these tiny moments that I remember in my childhood and say, how is that translated into my life as an adult? Hmm. It's interesting you don't want to use a word like predator because I think you do write them as predators, but not in the typical version of people use it in that reductive way. 
Why didn't you want to punish people? Do, do they not deserve it? Why do you think it's just important just to lay it out and not come to a no, conclusion? No, um, I, I really believe that, I mean, of course, individuals have agency, but what I was looking at was what is the larger structure that we're all operating under? And I think that these men in this book are both powerful and extremely insecure. I think a lot of the ways that they act and are predatory is in their mind a way to take back power. And so, you know, that to me says something about our culture and what we teach men around masculinity and around women that's not great for anybody. It ends up hurting women, but it also means that these men aren't doing so great as well. So, you know, for me, I was less interested in this kind of like aha moments of, oh, this guy's an asshole, this guy's a predator, and more saying like, we were all, you know, and also looking at the ways that I've been complicit in these situations. I actually wrote these essays sort of, and I think I had to kind of edit it out, but it was, I was trying to be really hard on myself. I was looking for the ways that I had made mistakes. Um, these were all experiences that I had a lot of shame around. And I wanted to say like, where did you go wrong? <laughs> and then I sort of realized in writing them that, you know, that wasn't helpful. Another person who influenced your thinking, I'm going to shift completely about women in power early, was Britney Spears. I loved those uh, observations about her. She essentially had to break down to get away, which then put her in a prison of her conservativeship for 13 years until very recently. Talk to me a little about your thoughts on Britney Spears, because, you know, she obviously had an impact on you as a young girl. How have your thoughts changed about her? What did you learn from her? And what do you think now after what happened to her? Oh my God. So I wrote that essay before the documentary had been released. And I certainly wasn't the first person to observe that she was a victim and had been treated terribly. But it was interesting to kind of like watch the cultural conversation change as I was working on and editing the book. Um, Brittany had a huge impact on me at the age of 12 or 13. To me, she was the example of a powerful woman. I knew there were presidents and rock stars and all kinds of powerful men. They came in many different shapes and forms. But for me, what I believed at that point was that the most desirable women, not just the most beautiful, but the most sexually desirable, you know, through the lens of the male gaze, those were the most powerful women. But Brittany was kind of this example, and she was so young. I felt connected to her, and it felt almost attainable. And I do think that, you know, I said to my mom, like, I think I'm ready to try modeling when I was 13 or 12. And I was thinking about Britney Spears and how cool she seemed and how powerful she seemed also. Mm -hmm. what, what did you learn from her, do you imagine? I mean, when she shaved her head, I was pissed. Um, I thought she was so lucky. And um, I was angry at her for kind of like not being grateful and not being this example of this like strong desirable woman. Um, so I learned a lot about myself <laughs> and my own um, bias and my own judgments. The fact that I, you know, had dismissed her and kind of thought like, oh God, she's having a breakdown, like boo-hoo. I'm horrified that I felt that way. Hmm. So I would dearly, uh, I would dearly like to never talk about Robin Thicke. And I'm just trying to think of a way to talk about this. I honestly do. What, what an asshole. I don't know what else to say. Mm -hmm. And avoiding, avoiding the Blurred Lines video that made you famous in 2013. I watched it again. Um, two things I want to ask you about this. One is, I was watching it again. And I watched it, you know, sort of lightly when I saw it the first time. I didn't really pay attention to it. Um, there's points where you're sort of winking and the whole thing. But you have 
what I would describe as dead eyes. I don't know how else to put it. Um, can you talk a little bit about, it's, it would be very hard to remember what you were thinking at the time, but it seemed like you were quite aware of what was very wrong, what was happening there, or maybe you don't think it's wrong what was happening there. No, um, I actually do remember what I was thinking um, very clearly, but I don't regret doing the video. I actually don't really regret anything. Um, <laughs> but what I was thinking is like, I'm getting paid as this, you know, I thought of myself as a, as a mannequin. It was a joke that I would say to people, but like, that's really how I had approached it. And I had this really kind of hardened sense of like, you're on the clock, you're checking in, you do this thing and then you leave. And it's, you know, I also had this feeling of, you know, I did not think it was going to be viral, but I was like, I know this is going to exist on the internet forever. And I kind of was thinking about my future self watching me do this job and thinking about the way it could be received in the world and was like, not going to, not going to um, get too animated. Um, and then, yeah, I mean, I think that there are points where I was really actually having fun. There's some shots where I'm dancing, where I remember like cracking up with the female DP um, and just being silly and kind of like, she felt like she was on my team and we were kind of like rolling our eyes together at the situation. But yes, I was knowing. Um, I don't think I had thought about power dynamics in the same way. I don't think I had, my politics were there, but I certainly wasn't like, how much fun, like, naively, you know, coerced into this video. I was like, I'm getting paid. You know, I was just very, it was work. Yeah. What would the 30-year-old Emily tell that Emily of anything? I guess I would say like, bitch, this is going to make you famous. <laughs> I'm like, watch out. The world is going to, you know, come a-knocking in a way that you're not prepared for. But I mean, I think that I knew, the only thing I think that I would kind of tell myself is like, give yourself a break. You know, you don't have to like have all the right answers because definitely when teenage boys and feminist thinkers like, you know, were discussing my body and sort of said like, well, what do you think about the video? I was defiant, you know, I was really defiant. And I think that I feel tenderness towards my younger self in that moment. So Robin Thicke isn't the only creep you encountered. In the book, you say he groped you during that video shoot, but you also write about the photographer Jonathan Letter in an essay you originally published in New York Magazine. You say you published a book of photos of you without your consent, and you talk a lot about whether you should sue or not and the costs of doing it. Are there any consequences he can face for this? His response to you was pretty gross. He said, quote, you do know who we're talking about, right? This is the girl that was naked in Treats magazine and bounced around naked in the Robin Thicke video at the same time. You really want someone to believe she was a victim? I suppose I want a reaction, but more I want you to talk about uh, intellectual property taken from a young woman like you. Yeah. Um, I mean, you know, what 19, 20, 21-year-old has a um, a lawyer on retainer? Um, like, And, you know, you're at the mercy of the agencies and I didn't understand anything about ownership of photos. And I think definitely I would have probably said, oh, I mean, if a photographer takes pictures, then they're his, right? At the time. Um, he went on to publish several books. And, you know, one of the most devastating things for me was what a lawyer said to me when I did call one up and say like, okay, what is the cost of this? Was like, well, I mean, what are you going to, even if you fight this legally, like maybe you can get half of the money for the books, but like the images are already out there. And I think that's the most devastating thing about the internet and revenge porn is that 
once they're out there, like it's very hard to wipe them clean. I also had my iCloud hacked. Yes, so that's right. I've had many experiences with this. So I don't know that there are consequences. I mean, I think what was really interesting to see and unsurprising, we've seen this a million times with me too, that there were other women who had had experiences like this with him. And more generally, so many women um, models who, you know, had their images used without their consent. Um, And there's really just not an ethical conversation or conceptual philosophical conversation around that in the industry. You don't even really see releases. The modeling agents sign them, which is brutal. Um, And they're very eager to please clients. Um, You would think that they, you know, they're making money off the models. They make a percentage of what their models are making. But their attitude is very like, these girls will come and go, but these clients are the ones who have the money and we need to make them happy. So you're taught as a young girl to be extremely agreeable and that, you know, you're replaceable. Are you angry about that taking of your image? You, You created an NFT, which was funny and a very creative way of dealing with it. Yeah. Um, it was kind of a a lighter example. The artist Richard Prince had taken one of my Instagram posts and turned it into a very valuable painting that I had bought. Um, so you bought yourself back. Yes. I bought the Instagram back. Um, and then, you know, I liked the idea of turning his work, actually returning something that had been on the internet that he'd made a physical thing that, you know, a very small portion of the population could afford into something that then lives on the internet. Um, And I really enjoyed that process. Does it make you angry that um, someone took your picture and made something else out of it? Someone else was taking pictures of you and selling them without your consent. And then you had a boyfriend who was selling the picture that was yours, except you were the one paying at all moments of the entire transaction. Does that make you angry? And the reason those images were valuable because they were of me. That's right. That's right. <laughs> That's the other key part. Yeah. Yes. You provided the fame, the picture. You made the yeah. entire cake. So, no, I wasn't angry. I was confused and embarrassed because I was so ashamed of the way I had handled things. So, I became angry. I definitely have anger. Yeah. Now I want to around. talk to you about that because yeah. you use the word shame for anger quite a bit. I, I, and you wrote, you didn't want to be angry. You thought that was an unattractive thing, I guess. Women were unattractive, angry. Um, what's the cost of that, of not being angry? Well, it bubbles up in awful ways in other parts of your life. You know, I think that I would find myself like all of a sudden super angry about some small thing that, you know, was the rage didn't match the crime. And, you know, really always angry at myself. Like, to be clear, I think anger is not to be too therapy talk, but like, it's a secondary emotion. There's usually something else that starts anger. And I was not willing to look at my anger in the face other than when it came to me and being angry with myself, which is why I use the word shame. Um, I have allowed myself to be angry, but... um, it's quieter than I probably would like. <laughs> what About what? I mean, even just talking about this right now, I'm like, I would love to just say to you, like, yeah, that was awful. And I am so angry at that person and whatever. But I guess I just feel like nobody's going to listen to me if I just come across as an angry, vengeful young woman. We'll be back in a minute. 
If you like this interview and want to hear others, follow us on your favorite podcast app. You'll be able to catch up on Sway episodes you may have missed, like my conversation with Anna Wintour, and you'll get new ones delivered directly to you. More with Emily Ratajkowski after the break. Intel is the spark for the dreamers who do. They dream of a life with no diseases, of cleaner, greener, more reliable energy, of advancing and expanding education by bringing AI everywhere. Intel is the spark to start something new, to know that no dream is too daring when you have the right foundation. It starts with Intel. Learn more at intel.com slash starts. My name is Thomas Gibbonsneff. I'm a journalist at the New York Times. I served in the Marine Corps as an infantryman. When it comes to reporting on the front line, a lot of the same basics are at play. Uh, you're looking at the map of where you're going. If you're on a paved road, field roads, you know, is there a hospital nearby? Is your body armor affixed with a first aid kit? Does everyone know where that first aid kit is? We arrive into a, a military position. I get out of the car. I look at my watch. You know, I set a timer, no more than an hour. I'm listening for drones, jets, check in with the team. Is everyone comfortable? And if they are, then we proceed. Frontline reporting is dangerous, but I think nothing is more important than talking to the people involved, you know, hearing their stories and being able to connect that with people thousands of miles away. Anything that can make something like this more personal, I think is well worth the risk. New York Times subscribers make it possible for us to keep doing this vital coverage. If you'd like to subscribe, you can do that at nytimes.com slash subscribe. I want to finish up talking about Instagram and the effect of this stuff on women, on girls especially. Um, This has got to be something that's top of mind. A lot of your fans are young girls. Uh, You say Instagram is the one place where you feel where you can control your image, where you can edit properly. But you also uh, write about obsessively checking likes. A lot of people do. Talk about your relation with Instagram. Is it empowering or toxic or both? I think both. Um, Just like everyone's relationship with Instagram, you know, it can be this tool that does feel like, you know, you're curating your image, you're curating what you're putting out into the world. And then all of a sudden it becomes this validation machine that, you know, is way too important. So both, it's both toxic. And I just don't know how I feel about the word empowering, but um, it offers some kind of control Mm -hmm. that can feel good. Do you use it more? I see you use it. You use it regularly, correct? Yeah, but I'm I'm kind of with a big question mark around it. Mm -hmm. Um, Facebook whistleblower Frances Haugen leaked internal research that show how toxic it is, especially for teenage girls. Showed Instagram makes body image worse for one in three girls. How do you imagine the impact is on teenage girls. Do you think about that? No, I mean, I do. Absolutely. I mean, I think that there's so many, you know, if it's not Instagram, it's something else. Um, I think that reinforce these beauty ideals and um, what a woman should be time and time again. I do think that I have a problem with the way that we constantly ask young girls to adjust and not our culture. And that was my experience as like a 13-year-old. It was like, don't wear that tight shirt because you're showing your boobs and that's going to make everyone feel bad and uncomfortable. And actually, you're not going to be safe and protected. And this is where I actually still do feel defiant because it's the same thing, you know, 
talk about sex work, um, the way that, you know, there's a conversation of like, well, sex work is just bad. And it's like, well, no, women are going to, you know, be sex workers because it's one way for them to survive. And they might be okay with some of the things that, you know, another woman isn't. And um, they might actually find control in it or whatever. And let's like talk about protecting them and making it as safe for them as possible rather than saying that it's um, not feminist. Um, so that's how I feel. And I, I feel the same way about, you know, girls and social media. I'm like, go get it, honey. <laughs> if that's what, you know, if that's what you want to do in the system that we live in, like, I'm not going to tell you not to. Do you worry about... Um this idea of unattainable standard of beauty because it gets amplified in the Instagram setting over, it used to be fashion magazines or Victoria's Secret mm -hmm. shows. But do you worry about contributing to the problem of teen girls when you post or do you not think of, you just post whatever you want to post? Um, I mean, I think that I feel like my body and my existence shouldn't be, it's like, this is a better way to frame it. When I think about climate change and actually, you know, trying to to reverse the effects and I'm not going to, you know, shame my grandmother for not recycling. I'm going to talk about the big companies and the ways that we can change systemically what's going on and how we're using energy on our planet. And I feel that same way when it comes to myself. That's just not my politics of sort of like, you know... Um, if I dress differently, then girls won't think that they have to show their boobs, you know, in a shirt. I'm just, I don't agree with that. I think that it, again, puts so much pressure on young women to kind of like change the system. And, you know, it turns women against each other as well in a way that I don't like. I would never say Britney Spears shouldn't have become Britney Spears. I want to look at the larger cultural framework. Mm -hmm. So one of the things, I, I want to press you a little bit on the social media thing, because I think you have a big impact on people who read it. Um, the Wall Street Journal, for example, talked to a teenager who had struggled with eating disorders. And she said, when I went on Instagram, I saw where images of chiseled bodies, perfect abs, and women doing 100 burpees in 10 minutes. Um, you know, when I looked at your Instagram, I even felt inadequate, although I could care less. I've been wearing the same sweatshirt since 1982, so I don't really care one way or the other. But it did; it does bring this sort of idea that you could easily see people who have um, aspirations to be you or to look like you. Um, do you feel that you could have a different impact or not at all? Or just this is, I am what I am and that's what I am? I mean, I guess I could just go off social media um, or just not post pictures of myself that would be like fashion or aesthetically, you know, whatever, appealing to the male gaze. Um, I, you know, this is how I make a living. And I still have, you know, that's my bread and butter. It's why I'm even talking to you right now. Um, so, you know, you said the video like brought me relevancy and fame and all those things. Like, I think that there's truth to the fact that my body and the way I look also does that. Um, so yeah, I'm not I'm not ready to just sort of be like, no, I'm just gonna like make a lot less money and give up. Like I think that the reason that even just in the last, you know, right talking about the book, it's like interesting because people are less engaged. I mean, people are engaging, but it's they're less engaged than obviously when it's like a you know really striking photo. Um, and I want people's attention to even talk about the things I'm talking about. Right. Um, I want to get their attention. Although, is that engagement or is that something else? 
I think so. They pay more attention. I mean, literally, it's actually engagement when you look at the mechanisms of the algorithm. Like, they're going to see my next post if they engaged with the last one. But what are they seeing? That's the thing. I mean, you want people to look at you but not see you, or do you want them to see you but not look at you? I want them to um, see me and look at me and also click the link to read the article that I care about or, Mm -hmm. you know, the essay that I think is interesting or, you know, read my book. Although... If people stop looking at you, they may be paying more attention to you. Do you think? Yes, I do. Yes, I do. I think every, I think almost everything on social media has become enormously reductive. And they're either hot takes or they're, look at that. Um, it's like one long traffic accident, some of which is entertaining. Yeah, it's true. I totally agree with that. I just think, you know, it's kind of the, the means to communicate now. Like, I just, what's the other option, I guess? Something else. A book. A a book. Yeah, yeah. yeah. A conversation, a longer thing. Exactly. That's why I wrote this book. That's why I'm sure you have your your podcast. Um, You talked a lot about needing to model because you have to make a living. Uh, I think you've moved well beyond that, I suspect, but I don't know. I don't know about your bank account or anything else, but you have a lot of skills beyond that and your beauty. You're an entrepreneur, you're a writer. Um, Could you force the world to see you differently by leaving behind an industry that's based entirely around beauty? Yeah. And that's my plan. I want to write more. I'm hesitant to be like, oh, and then I'll write a screenplay and direct a movie and whatever, because I feel like everyone says those things. And um, because I want to do it well, just in the same way that I felt, you know, like writing this book. I didn't want to just be another celebrity who was like, oh, yeah, I'm writing a book. Um, I wanted to figure out exactly how I was going to do it, have agency and control and um, make it good. (laughs) as good as I can make it. So, you know, I don't know what's going to be next, but I know that it's going to be some type of making thing around these ideas. It was a beautiful book, actually. It was quite a beautiful book and had a lot of uh, resonance for me. Anyway, Emily, thank you so much. I really appreciate you taking so much time. Thank you. Sway is a production of New York Times Opinion. It's produced by Naima Raza, Blakeney Schick, Daphne Chen, Caitlin O'Keefe, Elisa Gutierrez, and Wyatt Orm. Edited by Naima Raza, Blakeney Schick, and Allison Bruzek. With original music by Isaac Jones, mixing by Sonia Herrero and Carol Saburo, and fact-checking by Kate Sinclair. Special thanks to Shannon Busta, Kristen Lynn, and Mahima Chablani. If you're in a podcast app already, you know how to get your podcasts, so follow this one. If you're listening on the Times website and want to get each new episode of Sway delivered to you, along with passages of Emily's book that you can read to your wife when she's in labor, though I wouldn't recommend it, download any podcast app, then search for Sway and follow the show. Thanks for listening. <laughs>